0: What happens when the teacher leaves the classroom? I just need five minutes to talk to Mr. Eaves over in the technology department, said Mr. Scott. Can I leave you guys alone for five minutes? Yes, the class answers enthusiastically. Okay, you have plenty of work to be getting on with, so there shouldn't be any talking. Mr. Scott leaves the classroom. What happens next? For a moment, there's silence. Then, in one moment of madness, little Johnny lobs a piece of paper across the room. What follows next? Laughter, return fire, and most of all, chaos. Hopefully, this chaotic classroom picture gets us thinking about the question, what do we get up to when no one is looking? Or perhaps a better question is, what do we get up to when we think that no one is looking? This question is at the heart of tonight's passage. Tonight we're gonna focus our attention on three things, and if we understand these three things, we'll understand the core of what Jesus is saying to the Christians in Thyatira. So if you don't have your Bible open, can you open it along with me to Revelation chapter two? And uh, yeah, I'll be referencing it throughout. Um, Of course, we're here tonight to hear God's words um, more than mine. So our first point that we're looking at tonight is, Jesus sees and knows the good works we do. Verse 19 starts with Jesus saying to the church in Thyatira, I know your works. He goes on to say how he knows their love and faith and service. They're continuing to do this despite the context they're in. John Stott comments how the sporadic persecution that began under Nero in Rome had now spread and grown in scale under Domitian to be a more systematic and widespread widespread form of persecution. In a world that was becoming more and more opposed to Christianity, Jesus encouraged his church in Thyatira by telling them that he saw their love, faith, and service. How great is it when a manager or a teacher or even a friend says, I notice your great work. Keep it up. We can't help but feel encouraged to keep going. How much more encouraging would that be if the words were coming from the king of heaven himself? Surely this would help them to keep going in their faith. On top of this encouragement, Christ commends them on their latter works that exceed the first. It's clear that the Thyatira Christians didn't have a stagnant faith, but one that was growing. They were loving more and serving more. Likewise, we must be growing in our faith. It's important for us to realize that a living faith is a growing faith. So how does this all relate to our first point, which is Jesus sees and knows the good works we do? I think the key takeaway from this first point is that we need to realize that we can please God. I think in the church there's a misunderstanding around our ability to please Jesus. I think in some parts of the church, especially in more reformed circles, people think we can't please God. Everything I do is stained by sin. And in a sense, that's right. Nothing you do can meet God's perfect standard required to enter heaven. No work can make God see you as righteous. But thankfully for for us, we don't rely on our works to make us righteous. But we believe that through the blood of Christ, the Son of God's perfect righteousness is granted to us when we turn from our sin and when we believe in Jesus. In Hebrews 11.6 it says, and without faith it is impossible to please him. When it says him here, it's referring to God. So the Bible says that without faith it's impossible to please God. But once we are Operating within the context of being a Christian in whom the Spirit of God dwells, it's possible for us to please God by following, loving, and obeying Him. So let's move on to our second point. Our second point is that Jesus sees and knows the temptations we face, and He knows the wrong things we do. If we go back to verse 18, we're reminded who the letter is to, the church in Thyatira, and who the words come from, the Son of God. And like all the other letters, we get a description of what Jesus is like. In verse 18, it says how Jesus has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. As we move on to point two, we're going to cover some of the stranger and more difficult parts of the text. And if we're underst- to understand Revelation, then we need to remember its literary style is both apocalyptic and prophetic. This type of literature heavily relies on metaphors to try and communicate to us what's happening and what's going to happen in the future. Therefore, as we move on to point two, we want to understand what these metaphors symbolize and not just take them in a two-dimensional or a literal way. So what does the eyes, like flaming fire, symbolize? Simply, I think it's a powerful image that sports the truth at the start of verse 19. I know your works. Although Jesus ascended to heaven 60 years earlier, he sees and will judge what happens on earth. And what does Jesus see at the church in Thyatira? Well, as we covered in point one, Jesus sees many Christians who are seemingly covering all the bases of being a Christian. They have love, they have faith, and their patient endurance shows that they have hope in Christ. But as we read on, we see that the Thyatirans fall down on one major thing. They lack holiness. So what is the charge Jesus has against them? Well, the main charge he has against them is in verse 20 but i have this against you that you tolerate that woman jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols so jesus's charge against them is that they tolerate a self-proclaimed prophetess in the church who jesus calls jezebel now it's unlikely that this woman was actually called Jezebel, but rather she resembles the old character, the Old Testament character, Jezebel, and she resembles her in three main ways. So firstly, Jezebel in the Old Testament, she wasn't from Israel, and the Israelites weren't meant to marry anyone who wasn't an Israelite. However, in an act of rebellion, The seventh king of Israel, Ahab, married Jezebel, a non-Israelite. And in a similar way in Thyatira, this prophetess was seducing God's servants to practice sexual immorality with her. So how are these Jezebels similar? Well, they both persuade God's people to join in sinful relationships. A second resemblance is that both Jezebels incite God's people to turn from worshiping gods to worship idols. We'll come on to the last similarity between both of these Jezebels later in the sermon. But I think the evidence is clear why Jesus calls this prophetess Jezebel, because he uses influence and false teaching to mislead God's people, to commit the sin of sexual immorality and idol worship. Tonight, we're going to focus more on the sexual morality aspect, but the basic premise with food sacrificed to idols is that Jezebel is encouraging the people of God to be like the world around them. She encourages them to go to idol feasts that were associated with the different trade guilds in the city. And at these feasts, Christians are being tempted to sin. But for now, we're going to move on to look at Sexual immorality. So what is sexual immorality? The simplest definition is this. Sexual immorality is any sexual acts that happens outside the marriage of one man and one wife. In Thyatira, sexual immorality seems to be in the form of adultery between Jezebel and the servants of Christ. From Jesus' words in the letter, we learn about two necessary responses there are to sexual immorality in the church. The first response is to those who witness sexual immorality. If you see or you know of sexual immorality in the church, or you hear or know of those who are teaching or tempting believers to be sexually immoral, we should not tolerate it. There is no room for any tolerance of any sin in the church. Earlier in Revelation 2.2, 2, Jesus com, uh, commends the church in Ephesus saying, I know how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and find them to be false. So it's essential for us as the people of God that we test what we are taught and what we see in the church, and we test it against God's word. On the screen I've put up the four main ways in which sexual morality is seen in the church and a piece of scripture which teaches against each. So the first is referring to sex outside your marriage or adultery. This is condemned in the Ten Commandments where it says you shall not commit adultery. The second is sex before your marriage or fornication in Matthew 5, Jesus says, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Here it's saying, a man, when it talks about a man leaving his father, his father and his mother, that's the act of getting married and hold fast to his wife and two become one flesh, the act of one flesh is sex. So sex is only meant to happen within this relationship of marriage. The third is then sex within the same gender or homosexual relations. Um, In Leviticus it says, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. There are more ways in which sexual morality shows itself in the church, but the last point I've put up is referring to things that sex without a partner. So this covers things like pornography, lust, and masturbation. Again, in Matthew 5, Jesus says, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I think one key thing to clarify is it's not a sin to have sexual desires. They in and of themselves are a good thing. And when they're shown in a marriage between a husband and wife, that is a great thing. But outside of this context, it is a sin to dwell on sexual desires and gain enjoyment from them, which is to lust. Not only is it a sin to lust after sex and dwell on sexual desires, but it's a sin to act on our inappropriate sexual desires, for example, homosexuality. On that point, if you are same-sex attracted, it's not a sin to be tempted in this way. Is only a sin if we dwell on these wrong desires, or if we act on them. If we remember to the life of Jesus, we see that he was tempted, and yet remained sinless. So, with any of these sins, we need to remember: it's not a sin to be tempted, but it is a sin to give in to temptation through our lust or through our actions. Okay, let's get back on track. So like the church in Ephesus, we have tested these practices against the word of the Lord. And we can see that God strongly condemns each one of these practices. Therefore, what should we do? We shouldn't tolerate anyone who's seducing and teaching people to practice these things. And we should severely warn anyone who's practicing them. Now, what if you're sitting here and you're thinking, I'm guilty. I've done some of these things and I feel really bad about it. Well, Jesus' commands to the guilty are so simple. Repent. In verse 22, Jesus says, Behold, I will throw her on the sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. With heavy and sorrowful hearts, we must say sorry to the God we've sinned against. We must ask for forgiveness. And we have to turn from our sin and seek to put it to death. If you're struggling to put these sins to death, you need to do two really simple things that are summarized in James 5. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. All you need to do is find one person to hold you accountable, a friend to share your guilt with, or if you'd prefer to speak to our ministers here at Marty or John, they'd love to lend a listening ear. Sin loves the darkness, it thrives there. But sin loses its power when it's exposed to the light, when we share our sin with others. And once you have shared with a trusted friend, then you need to get to work with praying. A lot of these sins and temptations aren't just fixed with one prayer. We need to fight our sexual temptation with much prayer. For some, it'll be weeks for others years and for some it's a lifetime of prayer that will go into fighting our sinful sexual desires but what is important is that we start fighting them and putting them to death today so this concludes our second point you'll probably be glad to hear the sexual morality stuff is over and our second point obviously was that Jesus sees and knows the temptations we face and the wrong things that we do. So our third and final point tonight is Jesus pays us according to our works. Thus far we've seen the good things done in Thyatira as well as the bad things. With those who are tolerating and tolerating the teaching of Jezebel And we have those who are joining in her sexual immorality, namely adultery. And then we have those who don't hold to her teaching and are living faithfully for God. So what does Jesus say to these different groups within the church? In verse 23, he says, I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. This verse perfectly summarizes the letter to the church in Thyatira. Jesus sees your works and he will repay you according to your works. I'm gonna repeat that. Jesus sees your works and he will repay you according to your works. As we finish, we're briefly gonna look at how Jesus will repay both the unrighteous and the righteous. So how will Jesus repay the unrighteous? Well, for Jezebel, Jesus promises that she will be thrown onto a sickbed. And why does he do this? Well, because Jesus gave her time to repent, and yet she hadn't repented. Instead, she kept on leading astray more believers. And it's ironic that The bed, which was her source of pleasure, is now her place of pain as she suffers the consequences of her sin. This is also the third similarity between our Old Testament Jezebel and our New Testament one. They both finish their lives being defeated and judged by God. One being thrown into their sickbed and the other literally was thrown to the dogs. For the other believers who are committing adultery with her and they're eating food sacrificed to idol, idols, Jesus promises them that they will be thrown into great tribulation. It goes on to say that in verse 22, how her children will be struck dead. Now I think it's safe to say that these children refer to her spiritual children, i.e. the people who are following her teachings. So this teaching is very clear that those who persist in sin without repenting will be thrown into great tribulation or more commonly known as hell. So the warning to the people then, as well as to us now, if we're indulging in sexual immorality and the ways of the world, is that you must repent. You see, our sin separates us from God, and if we don't repent, then our sin will separate us from God forever. God is a God of love, but he is also a God whose eyes flame with the fire of judgment and who has the feet of burnished bronze to stamp his judgment on those who continue to rebel against him. Obviously, the sexually immoral Immoral and idol worshippers don't make up everyone in the church. So what is Jesus' message to the righteous? He tells them to hold fast to what they have. And what he means by this is they need to keep going. They need to continue to follow him and not give in to the temptation to sin. They need to keep his works until the end. I think that there is one great misunderstanding that you could take away from tonight's sermon. I think you could leave and think, I'm not a great Christian. I'll try harder, I must try harder. That's wrong. A Christian is a sinner who keeps repenting and keeps believing in Christ. This is the Christian's daily walk. It's daily repentance and daily belief in Jesus's ability to save us by his sacrifice on the cross. Christ's righteous, faithful servants aren't called to win every fight against sin, but they are called to keep fighting against sin. I'm going to repeat that. Christ's righteous, faithful servants aren't called to win every fight against sin. We can't but we are called to keep fighting against sin. And to those who do keep believing and keep fighting to the end, Jesus makes two really, really amazing promises to these believers. In verse 26, you can read along with me, it says, "'The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end To him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. I'm not going to start into breaking down all the metaphors from this passage, but there are strong links to the end of Revelation and some links to Psalm 2 as well. But the key point for us is this those who are faithful to the end will share in Christ's authority over the nations. How wonderful is this that the strange, struggling, persecuted Christians in the city of Thyatira will one day rule over the nations. The humble will be exalted. And Jesus promises one more thing to the faithful Christian. You may be missed it when we we're reading it through and it's right at the end it says jesus says i will give him the morning star i'm guessing that doesn't mean a lot to most of us i know when i read it i was yeah i just skipped straight past it but listen to revelation twenty-two sixteen. this is the last chapter of the bible and this is a verse from it i jesus have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches i am the root and the descendant of david the bright morning star so jesus in this verse tells us how he is the bright morning star and do you remember what he promises to the faithful christians in thyatara he says i will give him the morning star and in Revelation 22, Jesus says, I am the bright morning star. So Jesus, the King of heaven, the Son of God, the Lord of all, the creator of all, who is worthy of all honor, glory, and power forever and ever, says to the faithful Christian, I will give you myself. I'm going to repeat that because it's too good not to repeat. It's too the good news of the Bible is that Jesus, the king of heaven, the son of God, the Lord of all, the creator of all who's worthy of all honor, glory, power forever and ever, says to the faithful Christian, I will give you myself. It is my wholehearted belief that even in a thousand lifetimes of sinning and doing whatever you want, you will not experience even a fraction of the pleasure, the joy, satisfaction and glory that the Lord's faithful servants will feel on that day when we reign with Christ forever and when Christ will give himself to us so that we can fully know and fully love him for all time no if you 're anything like me sometimes you 're listening to sermon and you 're like that was quite boring and i didn 't really listen after about the first five minutes so for those of you who are sometimes like me i 'm going to do a sixty second recap of the whole sermon so brace yourself and also think of maybe two uh, maybe three different things that you want to hold to this week or you want to put into practice in your own life. So point one, Jesus sees and knows the good works we do. The key takeaways for us are that we should be encouraged that if you're a believer in Christ, you can please God by doing the good works that his spirit empowers us to do. Be encouraged that Jesus sees even our smallest good deeds. Point two, Jesus sees and knows the temptations we face and the wrong things we do. The takeaways are that We shouldn't tolerate anyone who promotes any type of sexual immorality in the church. We must confront these people and the people practicing these sins by graciously but firmly telling them the truth from God's word. If we ourselves are guilty of sexual immorality, we must say sorry. We must ask God for forgiveness and seek to put our sexual immorality to death through Seeking accountability from a friend and through the power of prayer. And then our third point, by far my favorite point, is that Jesus pays us according to our works. And the takeaways are that, unfortunately, the truth is, God will punish those who don't repent of their sin. But for the faithful, we must keep repenting. We must keep believing in Jesus and keep fighting sin. We must endure as faithful believers to the end. Christ will reward his faithful followers by allowing them to share in authority over the nations. And best of all, really the best of all, is that Jesus will reward us by giving giving us himself to enjoy and love for all eternity. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you for these words that you spoke through your son, Jesus. Lord, we pray that you would forgive us of all our sin, especially for our sexual immorality, Father, in whatever form it takes. Lord, we turn from our sin and we turn to you, the great physician who can make the sick well. Lord, give us the power of your Holy Spirit to help us to be self-controlled and to resist temptation. Father, grant us wisdom to discern what is right and what is wrong with the help of your word. Help us not to tolerate any form of evil in the church. And Lord, would you please give us grace and bravery to confront those who teach and practice it? Lord, we pray for those in our churches who are same-sex attracted. Father, we pray that the church would be a welcome and understanding place for them. Father, help us be supportive of our brothers and sisters who are fighting these temptations. Lord Jesus, thank you that you also see our good works. You notice the small things we do to love others and trust you. Thank you that you reward believers who by the power of your Holy Spirit continue to fight sin and repent and do good works. Thank you most of all, Jesus, that you reward us by giving your very self to us to know and love forever. Amen.